From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, Fletcher, Vermont, is one of the 116 towns in the state that haven't registered any COVID-19 cases so far. But public health researchers have singled it out for another reason. It was one of just a handful of communities in the country that avoided the deadly flu pandemic of 1918. And they want to know whether it holds lessons for today. When I pulled into Fletcher last week, my first stop was the general store. I want to say this is because of some reporter's instinct to seek out gathering places, but really, it was a hot day, I'd been driving for a while, and I had seen on Facebook that they had a creamy machine. Sadly, they're not using it this year. In this town, when it rains, you don't get creamies. When it's nice out, you get a line of creamies down off the thing. Well, if it rains for three days, I have to dump all my mix. This is Nancy Cardinal. She runs the general store. Tell me if you get busy. You look like you're doing well. She was sitting in an easy chair on the porch when I walked up, talking to Alan Carey. He lives down the road. It's very simple here. Yeah. Very simple life yeah, I out here versus being in the city, don't you think, Alan? What's up? It's very simple out here. People just kind of do their thing. Yeah, we just work. Yeah, it is. It's a very hardworking town. Nancy said Fletcher is small. The population right now is about 1,300 people. Um, and then we have a church and a store and a town clerk's office, and that's it. So she wasn't surprised to hear that the town managed to steer clear of the 1918 flu. We kind of live in our own little world, don't we? It's not a bad place to be, I'll tell you right now. On a lot of generations, I mean, if you when they used to have the larger families, people just didn't leave the towns. And they were on the farm all the time, so they were always working outside, so they probably... You know, that may there. have to do with it, too. Maybe that's why. Because most of, you know, they were farming or outside or something. So maybe that's why a lot of people didn't get sick here. She said there's a lot of self-employed people in town and a lot of farmers. Yeah, so it's, it's just a simple town. And most of our generation and up that's still here, they just kind of mind their own business and they just do their thing. Yeah. But a lot of the old timers, they don't leave this town. There's a lot of them that do not leave this town. And that, I would guess, and I don't know, um, but I would guess is why in 1918 you didn't have it here. Nancy suggested I reach out to the local historical society. So I tracked down Barry Doolin, who's a trustee there. He's also served as town moderator for the last 30 years. He hadn't heard about the town's flu history either. It's really interesting, isn't it, how Fletcher was able to escape uh, with only, what, two, uh, two cases and no deaths. That was interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it was more the isolation of Fletcher, even back then. Um, the only way to anybody who goes to Fletcher was going to Fletcher. It's not on the way to any place, and that's 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 still the way it is now. You know, if you wanted to go to Cambridge and you wanted to go to Fairfax, and you wouldn't go through Fletcher. You know, if you wanted to go to Waterville, you wouldn't go through Fletcher. <laughs> the town select board chair John Bondy said, "There's a reason for that. There is no state road running through the town. When the state offered to run." routes like 15 and 104 through towns around here, Fletcher said, we'll have nothing to do with that. John pointed out that even within the town, things are pretty spread out. The town garage and the elementary school and the town office and the Grange, none of them are within uh, a thousand feet of each other. So it's, it's in some ways unusual. 
Uh, there are plenty of towns that have real town centers with most of the town functions centralized in one location. So Fletcher is isolated. After losing cell phone signal and checking my atlas multiple times trying to get there, I can attest to that. But plenty of Vermont towns are isolated like this, and all of them except Fletcher had deaths from the 1918 flu. Why? My wife and I were talking about it. She says, well, there must be a gene in Fletcher. I mean, they're all related to everybody. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe there's a built-in immunity out here. I should mention that our data reporter, Aaron Patenko, first came across this research about the town. Hi, Aaron. Hello. So she and I called up one of the professors behind it, Alex Navarro, who's now the assistant director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Where are we talking to you right now? Oh, I'm in Southeast Michigan, yeah, in uh, just outside Ann Arbor. Oh, okay. Alex started studying the 1918 flu in 2005 for the U.S. Department of Defense. They're the ones who are looking at towns like Fletcher, Vermont, to see if they did anything uh, to escape influenza. And then from there, the CDC asked us to look at American cities and what U.S. cities did. We asked Alex if it wasn't just the geography, the roads, or the genes that saved Fletcher. What was it? His answer? Luck. In some respects, Fletcher was simply lucky, probably because they were so rural and so isolated. That's not a guarantee, of course. You know, these pandemics don't always strike evenly across any nation. You know, they're going to hit the urban centers first because that's where populations congregate. That's where you have travelers. That's where you have higher population density, people living in more crowded housing conditions. But being a rural town or county is not a guarantee that you're not going to get hit by the epidemic as well. When you say lucky, I mean, how lucky are we talking about? Like how many other communities were like this that completely managed to dodge cases and and deaths? So we, we identified uh, six or seven of them. Some of these were not entire communities. They were really sub-communities like Princeton University. We only found really Fletcher, Vermont and Gunnison County, Colorado, as well as Yerba Buena Island off the coast of San Francisco. There probably were other rural communities that did not get influenza or were not hard hit by influenza. But it's incredibly hard to find these. You know, it's like a needle in a haystack. These are the ones that we identified. To understand how Fletcher got lucky, it helps to understand how the 1918 flu played out. Alex said this pandemic had three main waves. So the first wave, uh, we now call the Herald Wave, and that that occurred in the late spring, in March, April, May of 1918. It was not very deadly uh, by any measure. In fact, it was probably somewhat less deadly than the seasonal influenza outbreaks that had been going on in the first years prior to 1918. Keep in mind, this was during World War I. Soldiers were moving around the country for training. So the second wave in the late summer started up mostly in military camps. And then because a lot of these camps are located fairly close to American cities, and there's lots of interaction between, civilian interaction between the the cities and these camps, people going to, to visit, you have civilian workers and contractors on these camps. It's inevitable that you get civilian cases shortly thereafter. And it's with amazing rapidity this hits across the nation. There is a little bit of a lag time between the Northeast and places in the Midwest and the West, but in some places, not that much. You know, the first cases in Denver, for example, occur in late September. And so that's not that much later after uh, it hits Boston and Philadelphia and New York. It was this fall wave that became really lethal. Ultimately, 675,000 people in the U.S. died. 
and the measures put in place around that time sound pretty familiar today. So there are some circulars that come out of the Surgeon General's Office, the United States Public Health Service, uh, warning people, civilians, what to be on the lookout for, uh, describing what uh, symptoms of influenza look like, asking people to cover their mouths with a handkerchief uh, when they cough or sneeze, and also telling public health officers that they might want to consider gathering bans if the conditions in their city warrant or in their state warrant that. It is interesting the parallels are there in terms of the interventions, like these measures that you talked about. Like, I feel like right now in our current crisis, we keep referring back to 1918 as our precedent. I wonder at the time, did they have a precedent? Like, were there previous outbreaks that had informed those intervention measures then? There were previous epidemics, influenza epidemics, and, and other diseases that did influence their public health measures but maybe not necessarily in the, in the way that you're thinking of. So, you know, certainly it's something like quarantine, okay? Quarantine comes from the Italian word for 40 days. So if you had a ship coming in that had people who were sick, you would keep everyone on that ship for 40 days, okay? And so isolation and quarantine was a centuries-old public health technique. In terms of things like closure orders and gathering bans, that was something that was relatively new. And there were a great number of public health officers at the state and local level who were not really sure that it would work. The, the feeling tended to be that it might be of some use, but if you weren't going to stop people from gathering everywhere, that it didn't make sense to stop them from gathering just in certain places. You were probably still going to get cases. That's true to a certain extent. Compliance is never 100%, but by limiting the numbers of contacts that people have you limit the risk. So we do know that today, as we found in our 2007 study, the early layered and sustained use of these non-pharmaceutical interventions is key. So if you layer them, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if you layer as many as possible, you get a better, better outcome. These pretty basic measures were about all that Fletcher did to respond to the flu pandemic. Fletcher didn't do anything other than what the state required them to do, these, these public gathering bans. Fletcher had a, a wedding for a soldier who was visiting from Camp Devens that was incredibly hard hit in the midst of their epidemic. Luckily, that soldier did not have influenza. And so when, you know, the town of, I don't know, 730 odd people, many of them I'm sure knew this young man who was from there, who'd grown up there and came back for his wedding. They were lucky that they didn't all contract influenza. It sounds as though these lessons that you're suggesting from 1918 mostly come from kind of the big picture from, from National. And it sounds like in the case of a place like Fletcher that seems to have kind of gotten lucky, I, I wonder if, if uh, how much do those things apply there? Or are there things that we learn from Fletcher's experience with it being so unique? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to realize that, you know, there's been a lot of focus, rightfully so, on the federal response to this, or perhaps you could say the, the lack of federal response or the chaotic federal response. And I think that's fair. On the other hand, it's also important to remember that public health in this country is largely the domain of states and, and local governments. And to some extent, that I think is proper. The federal government can certainly do things to marshal resources and develop guidelines and guidance. But you know, these states are all going to have their own epidemics, and they're going to have many different epidemics in the state. So I think it's incumbent upon local health officers to monitor the conditions in, in their region, looking at what's happening in the greater region, how much intercourse they have with the quote-unquote outside world to develop their own, their own plan. So I think it's fair to say that we don't necessarily have to be heavy-handed in the way that we issue these closure orders across a, a sweeping geographic section of the state or the country. On the other hand, I think it, it definitely behooves rural communities to think about the 
definite prospects that they may get an epidemic or a hotspot. It only takes one person that comes in that, you know, has COVID-19, maybe asymptomatic, goes to a, a church meeting or a restaurant, a movie theater, what have you, and suddenly there's an outbreak in a community that probably does not have the same medical resources available that a big city does. You know, Vermont lucked out, but nobody wants to count on luck in a public health emergency. If luck helps you, that's great. That's an added bonus, an added benefit. But you don't want to make you know public health policy on luck, nor do you want to say, well, we we don't have a whole lot of intercourse interaction with the outside world here, so we're safe. You know, we're compared to 1918, we're a, a much more international economy. There's lots more travel. We have we're an on-demand shipping system, so you have supplies coming from outside. You know, somebody eventually is going to come into a small rural community with COVID if we're not careful. So maybe Fletcher doesn't hold the key to avoiding COVID-19. But Alex said there's one other aspect of his research he keeps coming back to. The other lesson is that when communities in 1918 removed these closure orders and gathering bans, it proved almost impossible in just about every case to re-implement them when necessary. So depending on how bad the initial epidemic was in any city, If you look at the Midwest and the West and to some extent the South, when they removed their non-pharmaceutical interventions, in about half the cities we studied, they had a second spike of cases. And in some some instances, that second spike, this is still in the fall wave, was actually worse than the first spike. So in Denver, St. Louis, uh, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Kansas City, those places had significant second spikes of cases. There was really no political will, no economic will, no social will to re-implement the second round of closure orders. We only found two cities, San Antonio and Grand Rapids, where that was possible. So we're talking about reopening, and I fear that although the historical contexts are different, you know, human nature may not change all that much. And I think people are just going to be resigned to the fact that the epidemic is going to have to play out, that there will be people who die, and that's going to be it. And you know, I think it's important to note that there are sort of two competing definitions of what an epidemic is. There's the epidemiological scientific definition, but then there's also the social definition. And if people simply say, this isn't a big deal anymore, and we just have to live with this, the epidemic is, for all intents and purposes, over, uh, at least socially, at least politically. And I think that's what we're potentially facing, is these, these two competing definitions of an epidemic. The you know, public health officers are saying people are going to continue to die and in increasing numbers. And then this other group that is vocal, maybe small for now, vocal, but probably growing, that's saying we need to get back to life as normal. And it doesn't really matter. The epidemic's going to play out. 1918, we survived that. So let's just move forward. You know, we did survive 1918, but, you know, 650 to 675,000 Americans died when the population of the U.S. was about a third of what it is today. I think we need to be careful about what lessons we draw out of 1918. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Stay safe and stay healthy. Hey, you too. Okay, bye. You can find our full story on how Fletcher dodged the 1918 flu at vtdigger.org and find all of our coronavirus coverage in one place at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. Have a nice weekend.